Hear the word of the Lord. Exodus chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb. According to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Revelation 5, verse 6, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. If there is a doctrine that's found in Scripture that gives very clear evidence that it's a revelation of God and not man, it's, it's what we tend to call anthropology. The study of man, and in particular, the study of man's sin and how God views our sin. One classic text is from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 3, which, speaking to God and describing God to Himself, says, You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Now, that doesn't mean God literally can't see it. What it means is that the purity and the justice and the immutability of God will not allow Him to behold evil or wrongdoing with any hint of pleasure, and I'll add, or even neutrality. He can't even turn His back and, and, and look away from it or pretend that it doesn't exist. Psalm 7.11 says that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Or some of you might have is angry with the wicked every day. And that helps us to see that the Bible doesn't, doesn't treat evil or wickedness or sin merely in the abstract. Like there's this idea of sin and God is opposed to that idea... The Bible describes sin as the underlying constitution of individual people, souls. You, as an individual, are the sinner. We say it all the time, right? We sin because we're sinners. You're the sinner. You are, Ephesians 2, 3, by nature, children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. We gather into the assembly and we like to imagine that, that our, uh, our sinfulness is not like the rest of mankind. Paul makes it very clear to the Ephesian church, you were just like them. No different than them. Like the rest of mankind, you came from the womb speaking lies. You came out of the birth canal under the just condemnation of God as an individual, it's you that are the problem, not just the idea of sin. That's how the Bible describes it. And so when we put these ideas together that God is, is angry with the wicked every day, He cannot behold evil or wrongdoing with any type of pleasure, and that is not just an abstract, but it's sin in the individual, we, we understand that, that you and I, as, as natural men, by nature are an abomination to God. In Adam, you are a walking and talking offense to God. God despises your personality. It's not cute to Him. It's annoying to Him. It's aggravating to Him. The things that you love by nature, God hates all of those things. He despises them. The things that you produce 
But the work of your hands, apart from Christ, they're a stench to Him. He can't stand them. God can barely stand the sight of you by nature, and when He does look at you, it only increases the indignation. It's like the prophet Nahum asked, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken in pieces by him. If the rocks are broken in pieces, what chance do you have? Now we wouldn't come up with this doctrine if we were writing a Bible. If we were making up a religion, we wouldn't come up with this. But this is what God has said about our condition. Now hopefully the majority of us in this room would say, we're no longer in Adam. We're in Christ And in Christ, we know and can trust that God does not hold us in contempt any longer because Christ has already bore the indignation on our behalf. Right? Hopefully that's that's true of us. Okay, so we we know that that is true. And then even still, as the redeemed of God, we know that we have this residue of our Adamic nature in us. And still yet... We can't chalk it up to something other than me. It's me. Now it might not be the prevailing ruling power within us as a believer, but I also can't say, well, I've been born again, so that's not really my problem. That's not my responsibility. I'm not liable for that sin, this sin or that sin. It's not me. It's just something other than me. As a matter of fact, I would say that if you're born again, you've been given the mind of Christ... You're indwelt by the Spirit of a holy God. And so now we respond to our sin with something of a small reflection of God's response. That causes us to say with David in Psalm 51, I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. It's like I can't get away from it. And we see it. We feel it. We despise it. We're repulsed by our sin. Very often we find ourselves asking, "How how could I have thought that thought? Where did that come from? How could I have said that? How could I have felt that? How could I have acted that way? I've been a Christian for a blank number of years. How is that still happening? Because we see it. We, we Actually, only the regenerate man can even begin to see his sin for what it truly is through the revelation of God's Word. So we're presented with this great dichotomy that can only be satisfied by faith in the revelation of of what God has said. I know me and you know you. I know the way that I think and speak and act and you know the way that you think and speak and act. We got that. And yet, in Christ, we hear, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. How, how, does that, how do we reconcile that? God knows me And God knows you more than we know ourselves. He's well aware of our sins, more aware than we are, more offended than we are. And yet, He says there's no flaw. How can God see us as anything other than despicable when very often I can't see myself as anything other than despicable? How can God see me as anything other than reprehensible, and yet we turn in the Scriptures and we find that in Christ we have become the righteousness of God. This is one of those supreme acts of faith. We talked several weeks ago about the love of God, believing that God loves us. 
is an act of faith. Believing that God looks upon us and says, there is no flaw in you. That's an act of faith because it's not what we see with our eyes. It's not what we feel or think with our minds. And so how do we feed this particular area of our faith? How do we exercise this and strengthen the faith in this revelation? By looking unto Jesus. Because it's His righteousness that's been imputed to us. His righteousness covers us. It's His robe that we wear. And the reality is if we knew Jesus Christ, if we were not so slow of heart to believe in who He is and and, and what He's done and what the Scriptures say about Him, our question would be, how could God not declare me righteous? How could God not be satisfied with His work? How could I ever be cast off seeing what Christ has done for me? We don't study Christ enough. This is why we have this constant internal war. I, can't, I just can't believe that what God sees is what His Word says. It's because we've not studied Christ. The answer is not found in studying yourself more, getting underneath your sin and saying, surely somewhere in there I can find a righteousness. Because that's not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach you've been covered with the righteousness of another. God views us and treats us as having been imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who in our text is referred to as a lamb. Now, remember the lamb image finds its roots in the first Passover. Moving from there, it goes into the sacrificial system of Israel. And the lambs that were required by God were not ordinary lambs. They had to be extraordinary. They had to be without blemish. And that physical picture of the lamb without blemish reminds us of the reality of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness that's been imputed to us. If we wanted to define righteousness, we could say it's absolute parallel conformity to the moral uprightness of God Himself. So God is the standard. I think we would agree there. If anything is to be righteous in the ultimate sense, it must have a morality that matches God's morality at every point with no room for deviation, no room for error, no wiggle room. Absolute parallel conformity to God's morality. And so the Lamb image reminds us of the righteousness of Jesus. And when we consider the righteousness of Jesus, this... This Yes, it draws our, our affections to Him, but it also helps us increase our own confidence before God. We're seeing the righteousness that's been imputed to us. So, let's study the righteousness of the man Jesus. And once we ascertain the righteousness of Jesus, I can, in faith, take that and, as it were, wrap myself in it and say, so this is how God sees me as a believer. In Christ, this is how God treats me. And I want to consider the righteousness of Christ using an outline that I sort of uh, discerned from Isaac Ambrose's work looking unto Jesus. And uh, and hopefully this will give you a little bit of a a structure, some categories through which you can begin to study the righteousness of Christ. So first, there is negative righteousness. Negative righteousness. Being perfectly righteous... There are some things that will not be present. If a glass of water is perfectly pure, there are some things that water is not going to have in it. It's not going to have dirt. It's not going to have grime. Negative righteousness. 
One word the Scripture uses or idea that the Scripture puts forth is that the man Jesus was a blameless man. Speaking negatively, you could not bring a blame or a charge against Him for any wrongdoing and have it stick. Not one. In the language of Hebrews 7.26, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, that is Jesus, holy, and here's the word, innocent. Not guilty, guileless, no guile, no craftiness, no deceitfulness. There's nothing in Jesus hiding under the surface that some, some witness might come and bring to charge against Him. Absolutely free of evil or guilt. No evil in Jesus. No guilt in Jesus. And He knew this. This is why He could ask in John eight forty six, Which one of you convicts me of sin? He's asking, who would like to bring a charge against me? Now, they do go on to bring false accusations, but they could not bring an actual charge against the man, Jesus Christ. Now, how many of us would be comfortable coming up in, before the congregation and saying, somebody bring a charge. Anybody in the room bring a charge and expect that mouths would be shut. We, we don't, but this was Christ, absolutely blameless. In Matthew 26... The chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put Him to death, but they found none, not even false testimony. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. That's not what he said. They couldn't even find two good false witnesses. And when they did find two false witnesses, the accusation wasn't legitimate because they distorted his words and misapplied his meaning. He was absolutely blameless. They worked at finding some charge and they found none. Absolutely blameless. John 18, 38, Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. John 19, 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. John 19, 6, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. I'm not going to crucify an innocent man. He's blameless. No legitimate accusation. Has this ever been true of you? Can you even look back at a time in your life when you could say, The people that knew me best, they could say, I was blameless for a week. I was blameless for a day. I was blameless for an hour. We can't do it. We know the answer is no. We live every day knowing the answer is no. I wake up in the morning knowing that I'm not blameless. But for the man Christ Jesus, the answer is yes. He's absolutely blameless. And in Christ, there is no charge that can be brought against you in the court of God and stick. Not one. Every charge falls to the floor as if it were a lie because of what Christ has done. And this is why Paul says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? You don't, there, there's none. He's absolutely blameless. He's also spotless. Morally, Christ is without spot. No contamination. Zero blots in His moral character. Back to Hebrews 7.26. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, free of pollution, 
or stain of sin. If we got out the black light, I bet there's nobody in this room who does, is not wearing a garment that's unstained on our bodies. Christ, with regard to His character, is absolutely spotless. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You want a clear conscience? Think on Christ. He offered Himself to God. At the moment of His death, He was without blemish. All the way up, the entirety of His life was blemish-free. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter makes the connection between Christ and the lambs of the Passover. Exodus 12, 5, we didn't read this far in that text, but... As Moses gave the instructions from God, he said, Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old. Now just imagine the search for this lamb. Leviticus 22 gives us a little bit of insight into what it would have meant to look for an animal without blemish. It says, when any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering at his for his offering, for any of their vows or free will offerings that they offer to the Lord, it is, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. Nothing with a blemish is acceptable before God. When anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as food offering on the altar. You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part too long or too short for a free will offering, but for a vow offering, it cannot be accepted. Any animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord. You shall not do it within your land. Neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner, since there is a blemish in them because of their mutilation. They will not be accepted for you. This is what was required at the first Passover, a lamb without blemish. Now just imagine the nation gets this word from Moses and they all go back to their homes and the father calls his eldest son and he says, gather your brothers and sisters. We have to go out into the pasture. We need to work hastily, but not sporadically. We we don't want to scare the sheep, but we need to be quick and diligent about our search. And we have to find, listen to me son, we have to find a lamb a year old, without blemish. And so they would go out. They would look at their size, their shape, the length of their wool to try to see, is this a lamb a year old? Maybe it's not a year old. They would determine the age of it. They would look to distinguish, is this a male or a female? And then now of all of the males a year old, 
They would begin to search and inquire, is there any blemish on this lamb? And the clock is ticking. They have to have the lamb. So the clock is ticking. And what would be the end of this search? You can imagine the firstborn comes home and says, Father, we've, uh, I gathered the brothers and sisters. We've whittled down the lambs. We've got all the, the male lambs a year old. We searched them. We found the lambs without blemish. Father, are we going to offer the very best that we have? The most promising? The most fruitful? The most useful lamb that we have? And he would say, My dear son, what is a lamb compared to you? I would give all of my lambs for you. You're my son. Now we compare this to the antitype in Christ. We can almost hear the uproar in the heavens as the eternal son steps forward and all of the angels begin to to fret and to ask, Lord, God, omnipotent, shall we offer the very best heaven has to offer? The most promising, the most fruitful, the most useful, the most precious one, our prince. Are you going to send our prince? And the father ignores every one of them. He can't take his eyes off of his son. And he says, son, I have sheep who must be gathered into my fold. They are full of guilt. Blameworthy of every vile wickedness. They are blind and cannot see. They are lame and cannot walk. Mutilated by paganism. Unable to produce anything good. They are diseased within the pus of their debauchery. Oozes from every orifice. Diseased without. Covered in scabs and sores of iniquity. And son, there's none so perfect as you. None more qualified to redeem them. And the son says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And Christ, the blameless, spotless Lamb, comes into the world to take away our sins. We made no search. We made no inquiry. There there was no no broad swath of lambs that we had to, to, to whittle down to one. There was no other. And if there was a search, we weren't after it. We weren't making the search. We weren't looking. God provided the lamb. He fulfilled the promise He made to Abraham. God will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. And so if we searched into eternity and investigated and inquired of every holy angel, cross-examined them all, compared all of their testimonies, then came down to the earth and we asked Mary and Joseph and James and Joseph and Jude and all of the brothers and sisters of Jesus and Simon and cross-examined them all. We said, y'all get together, all you brothers and sisters, y'all get together and just talk about your time with Jesus in the home. We could ask all of the people who loved Jesus, all of the people who hated Jesus, get them all together and we could ask, can you name a single solitary flaw in His character? Just one. One wrong that He ever did in the home or in the workplace or in the the market. Any. And they would all say with a resounding chorus, we find no fault in this man. Not one. And if you're in Christ... That chorus is yours. We find no fault in this one. In the court of God, we find no fault. This one belongs to the Lamb. So He's blameless and He's spotless. His negative righteousness. Secondly, then we come to His positive righteousness. The things that are positively true of Christ. Owned of Christ. Performed by Him in His activities. 
First, we can consider His moral holiness. This is usually what we think of when we think of the word righteousness. Our mind goes straight to this moral holiness. When it comes to morality, there a certain standard of uprightness. God requires active holiness. God has a perfect law which outlines what righteousness will look like and moral holiness is conformity to that law in a person's actions and thoughts. And so it wasn't simply what was not present in Christ. It was what was in Christ. His active, positive, moral holiness. To use the illustration of the cup again. An empty cup, we could say, well, that cup has no dirt. But we can't say that it's full of perfectly pure water. Christ was not only free of defect, He is full of every perfection. Consider the holiness of His nature. That which constitutes His existence, which makes Him what He is. According to His nature, He's absolutely perfect and righteous. Now with Christ, this is, this is doubly blessed because He has two natures in one person. So we consider the holiness of each nature. His divine nature. The man Christ Jesus is God. So He's the one that Habakkuk spoke of. He's the one that Nahum spoke of. Jesus is the one that the angels refer to as holy, holy, holy. He's the one the demons called the Holy One of God. The one that Abraham assumed as judge of all the earth would always do what is right. In Him there is no shadow. There's no darkness in Jesus. He's the definition of righteousness, the standard of moral holiness. He is the one by whom every person is going to be judged. He is the bar. The man Christ Jesus, being truly and completely God, can't be comprehended in any way apart from His divine nature. This is why you, don't, you can't have a picture of Jesus. Regardless of how you feel about Him, they don't exist. Because you can't conceive of the divine nature. And His divine nature, He is the standard of righteousness, the definition. If anything is righteousness, it's measured by Him. And then there's His human nature. His divine nature wouldn't do us much good if it weren't coupled with a human nature because God required a human righteousness. We are humans and we have committed human sins. We are guilty of human unrighteousness. What is required is a human righteousness. We need one who's righteous as one of us. And this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 1.35 says that the angel said to her, that's Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Spirit sanctifying the human nature in the womb. Then the eternal Son, the divine nature, taking unto Himself that sanctified human nature. And therefore we have both divine and human natures absolutely morally perfect, doubly righteous. He is the standard and He meets the standard. He makes it and He meets it. This is why in Psalm 45, like we read last week, we can say you are the most handsome of the sons of men the most attractive, the most amazing, everything pleasing, everything upright, everything adorable, every upright trait is found in Christ. Now by nature, we are not holy. According to our nature. We don't have two natures. We have one, a human nature. We got that from our father Adam. And so by nature, we are children of wrath. But Christ by nature is the Son of God's love. Son of God's pleasure, the Son of God's delight. 
And so the Father can look down upon the Son, whether He's dripping with water in the Jordan River or standing with the effulgence of the brightness of God's glory on the Mount of Transfiguration in both places and say, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At any point, the Father is pleased in this One because He is absolutely holy according to His nature. Now, in addition to that righteousness which we might say is in Jesus, His nature, there's also that righteousness that was performed by Jesus. The holiness of His life. The things He did. Matthew 5.17 Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Christ fulfilled the law. He didn't come to do away with the law and make it no longer applicable He came to fulfill it, to live it out to its fullest extent. He fulfilled all righteousness. He's the only one who could say, like we read last week in John 8, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him, my Father. God can take no pleasure in iniquity and sin. So if God is pleased, then that means Christ always acted righteously. In Acts 3.14, He's called the Holy and righteous one. Acts 2.27, God's holy one. He's the only one who could bring in an everlasting righteousness according to Daniel 9.24. There is no other. God's given His law. He's told us what He requires of men. In addition to that, He gave the commonwealth of Israel more positive laws. For that nation, Christ perfectly, actively fulfilled everything in both the moral law, and the laws of the commonwealth. In His external actions, perfectly righteous. In the internal actings of His mind and His heart, perfectly righteous. In His commission, the things that He did, He always did what was right. In omission, the things that He didn't do, He never did anything that He was not supposed to do. He was obedient to every explicit positive command of God as well as every specific application of each general principle in every particular situation. Always perfectly righteous. Whether the highest act of worship in the assembly, perfect. The lowest act of yielding up his soul to God, perfect in his death. Every prayer that he prayed was prayed without any hint of vanity. His mind never wandered off if somebody else was praying. Every song that he sung in the assembly was sung with perfect reverence. Never a misplaced affection. Never drawn out a little bit more by some sentimentality than revealed truth. Every smile on his face was genuine. Every time he frowned, it was perfect for the occasion. If he smiled, a frown would have been sinful. And when he frowned, a smile would have been sinful. He never had a regret. Never wasted a single second of his life. Never wasted a conversation. Always made the best use of his time. Never spoke an idle word. Never carried on an unprofitable conversation. Never had an impure glance, an impure thought. Never experienced covetousness. Always perfectly content with godliness. He never spoke a half-truth. He always told the full truth. When he was a boy in his father's carpenter shop, he never cut corners to save money or to get done early so that he could go play. He never used his work time for play time. He was the model child, the model citizen, the model church member. 
He never slept in late because he was lazy. He never got up early because he was arrogant and wanted to tell people how early he got up. He is altogether in every action lovely. Now, again, let's compare this to ourselves. Not only are we unholy by nature, from the womb unholy, but as soon as we begin to act, it's unrighteous. We don't obey God's law. We don't always do what pleases God. We don't even have a temporal righteousness to offer, let alone an everlasting righteousness, which is what God requires. We've earned nothing but the just condemnation of God. Now that brings us to the last division of Christ's righteousness. As we consider the table of our Lord, the satisfaction of justice. Christ fulfilled all righteousness by obeying the law, but the law also requires a punishment for wrongdoers. He fulfilled that as well. The law of God demands just retribution. Someone has to be punished for breaking the law of God. Christ actively took that upon Himself. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He who was not guilty was cursed for us because we are guilty. The Father says there are some guilty. Payment must be rendered. I can't simply pour the dirty water out and set it there and call it righteous. There has to be a perfect righteousness brought in. And that means both sides of the law must be fulfilled. Colossians 2.14, Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. You and I were born with a record of debt, legal demands, penal obligations to the law of God that says, this one is under the law, they must be punished. And Paul says these penal liabilities... This, this record of debt, these legal demands, these obligations to satisfy the justice of the law, all of that was nailed to the cross. Now, what was nailed to the cross? The man Christ Jesus. He was nailed to the cross. And so, being nailed to the cross, voluntarily yielding up His life, both ends of the law are satisfied by Jesus. What God has commanded, He did. And the justice has been satisfied. He did all that was commanded and died for all that was neglected. And so the cup of blessing that we bless at the Lord's table is a cup that comes to us because of the satisfaction offered to the Father by the Son on our behalf. And so as we come to the table... We're reminded of what Jesus has done. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We're preaching. All of us, members of this church, members of other churches, we are, we are preaching. We, now everybody gets the chance to preach. Where you sit, you're preaching. And you're saying, Christ died for the ungodly. This cup is in the hand of, of flesh that is not righteous. This, this, this bread is, is being hand, held in the, the physical... Uh, portion of a human nature that is not holy. And yet I get this 
the cup of, and, and the bread of the Lord, the table of the Lord, I get this rather than condemnation. Rather than just condemnation, week after week after week, the Lord says, Christ has died. Christ has died. Christ has died. He's fulfilled all of the demands of the law. This is how God views those who are in Christ. At the table, we're reminded of how God views sinners. The law had to be obeyed. The justice had to be satisfied. We eat and we drink. And we remember that God views us as if we had rendered it ourselves. As if you had already obeyed. You say, well, yeah, but I, I, I sinned. He views you as if you've already been punished. It's already been meted out. It's done. There's no more left. Again, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we come to the table, we don't have to come with trepidation, wondering, well, well, am I accepted in the Beloved? Our thought ought to be, I'm getting to the table. Of course I'm accepted. Did you hear that righteousness I was just talking about? Have you ever considered this man? How could God not accept this? And of course, infinitely perfect, infinitely sufficient for a thousand worlds of sinners to be saved. Perfect everlasting righteousness. And He invites us to come to His table. This is His testimony. If we ever had to wonder, am I accepted? How does God view the sinner who is in Christ? He says, I'll show you. Come, sit, eat, and get together, and I want you to preach the death of the Lord Jesus. Preach it to yourself. You preach it. Christ has died. I'm a sinner. But Christ has died. Oh, I haven't obeyed. But Christ obeyed. How far did He obey? All the way to the point of death. His dying moment was an act of obedience. Christ has died. Every Lord's day, Christ has died. This is how God views us. So as we come to the table, let's let's set our minds to that. He's crucified for our transgressions. As the elements are passed, consider the cross, and then we'll come to the table and have communion with Him and one another.